Friends, if you're anything like Jenny and me, and you take your holidays in self-catering accommodation, the question that is always asked just as you are leaving the house is, have we got everything? Have we got everything? Mobile phone, wallet with credit cards, food for the dog, extra pairs of shoes, rolled up piece of foam in case the beds are too hard, and most important of all, instructions as to how to get there. Have you got, have we got everything? You see, somewhere after the first two miles of the journey, you pass the point where it's feasible to turn around and go home. So you have to make sure now, have we got everything? Now, quite soon, you and I will be on a journey. But we won't be going together. Jenny and I will be off to the wilds of East Anglia. And you will be venturing once again into the unknown territory of pastoral vacancy. Now, many of you have already been there lots of times before. And it will give you a chance to stretch your spiritual arms and legs and breathe some fresh air for the first time for five years. But for others, it won't be easy because it will demand greater effort and time and hard work to maintain the church's life and witness. For the whole congregation, it will be an exciting period and I know that God has wonderful surprises, fresh opportunities. And he's going to bring you a new pastor who's going to lead you under the guidance of the Holy Spirit into those surprises and fresh opportunities. Now, the start of the journey is uh, still a few weeks away, but we need to think about it now. Already, the packing in Rycroft has begun. So if you see me looking tired and wan, you'll know why. Already we're agonizing about what to take with us and what to get rid of before we go. For at least two months, arrangements for the pastoral vacancy has been on the elders' meeting agenda, so they've been preparing as well. But this morning, I want to ask the whole congregation to think about getting ready. Last week, we left Moses trembling before the burning bush, making every excuse in the book and pleading with God to send someone else to Egypt. And he was told in no uncertain terms that he was not going to be allowed to duck the challenge. This was what God had in mind for him, and he'd better get used to doing it. And when Moses pleaded his weakness and the possibility that no one would believe him, God responded in Exodus 4, verse 2, the Lord said to him, what is that in your hand? What is that in your hand? Now, it's a very simple question. But actually, it's the basis for everything I want to share with you this morning. You might wonder why God asked such a question. Surely he could see what was in Moses' hand, and anyway, he's omniscient, he would know already. God didn't ask the question, what is that in your hand, to find out what was in Moses' hand. He asked the question 
so that Moses would find out what was in his hand. So that although he thought it was just an ordinary, unremarkable thing, he would find actually that what was in his hand was incredibly wonderful. And God could do wonderful things with it. So let me repeat the question, and this time directed to each one of us. What is that in your hand? What is that in your hand? In other words, what gift or capability do you have to bring to this fellowship as it sets out on the pastoral vacancy? Now, you may think you have nothing in your hand, and you would be quite wrong. So, turn with me to our New Testament reading, page 1139, to Romans chapter 12. It's a wonderful chapter. And Paul begins by urging the Christians in Rome to offer themselves as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. Now, the Romans were used to sacrifices. They were going on all the time in the precincts of the temples in Rome. But this was a different kind of sacrifice because not only was the victim not an animal, it was a human being. But the sacrifice went on day after day, year after year. And there was another difference as well. The victim always had the chance of getting down and walking away from the altar. Christian discipleship is not for the faint-hearted. When Jesus called Peter, Andrew, James, and John and the others to follow him, he wasn't offering them a rest cure. He was calling them to make the ultimate sacrifice, to make him the most important person in their lives. And he's calling us to do precisely the same thing. Have a look at verse 3 of Romans chapter 12. For by the grace given to me, I say to every one of you, do not think yourself more highly than you ought, but think of yourself with sober judgment in accordance with the measure of faith God has given you. Now that's a two-edged verse, isn't it? Because there are some people who think, oh, I can do everything. I'm God's gift to the church. Well, actually, you are God's gift to the church. That's precisely what you are. But I can do everything. Well, brother, sister, think of yourself with sober judgment. Be aware of your weakness as well as your strengths. But also be aware of what you've got. It cuts both ways. There are those of us who need to think of ourselves with sober judgment so we don't overestimate our gifts, but there are those who need to think of themselves with sober judgment so they don't underestimate their gifts. Oh, I haven't got anything to give. I'm old. Moses was 85 when he stood before the burning bush. I'm just ordinary. Consider your call, brethren, how that not many mighty were called after the flesh, not many wise. God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the strong. So, think of yourself through with a sober judgment. And then verses 4 and 5. Just as each one of us has one body with many members, and these members do not all have the same function, so in Christ, we who are many form one body, and each member belongs to all the others. Each member belongs to all the others. You see, we cannot function on our own. 
When you ride a bicycle, you need legs and feet for the pedals, you need arms, you need hands to hold the handlebars, you need eyesight to see where you're going. You need all those things and you need them to function together. Any human activity depends on a body working together. And if a church is going to function effectively, particularly during a pastoral vacancy, every member has to function together. And every member has to remember that there's that rather wonderful word there in verse 5. Each member belongs to all the other. Do you know that? Do you, belong, do you know you belong to your fellow church members? And they belong to you? Now, in verses 6, 7, and 8, we have some of the most important things that need to go into the suitcase. You see why Josh brought his suitcase. We do actually talk to one another. What are the things that need to go into the suitcase? Well, first of all, encouragement. Encouragement. We have different gifts according to the grace given us. Verse 6. If a man's gift is prophesying, let him use it in proportion to his faith. Actually, the Greek can also mean preaching, stirring speech. Don't we need to encourage one another? Oh, yes, we do. It's the oxygen of Christian fellowship. I'm not talking about flattery or constant stroking of people's egos. Folk can be encouraged just as much by being shown how they can do better. I am so grateful for the people who over the years have pointed out my mistakes so that I don't have to make them again so frequently. So, please, 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 point out my mistakes. You do that because you love me and you want me to be better. And then in verse 7, if a man's gift is serving, let him serve. If it is teaching, let him teach. Teaching is one of the most important gifts, ministries in the body of Christ. Since I have been here, I have learned so much from my fellow church members and elders. So much. In a sense, there is no time to go into some of the lessons that I have learned, but we can teach one another as we read the scriptures, as we study the scriptures, as we respond to the scriptures. And then in verse 8, we come back to that essential thing, encouragement. If it is encouraging, let him encourage. Oh, yes. Let's build one another up. Don't let's tear one another down. Let's build one another up. And then there's giving, contributing to the needs of others. Let him give generously. Well, those of you who were here at church meeting on Thursday will know that the general fund, by the end of the year, will be exhausted. The church will have spent 
everything in the general fund because we're running at a deficit of about uh, around about 11,000 a year. Is that right, Jer Jeremy? Around about 11,000. The challenge is to each one of us In the book of Malachi, it says, you're robbing God. And the people say, how are we robbing God? And Malachi says, you're robbing God because you're not tithing, because you're not giving. And then there's a promise, bring the whole tithe into the storehouse and see if I will not open the windows of heaven and pour out a blessing that there will not be room enough to contain it. That's the challenge. Later on in verse 8, if it is leadership, let him govern diligently. We need to pray for our elders. We need to value our elders. We need to trust our elders. And we need to come to church meeting expecting God to speak. So many people think that church meeting is the place where you decide what you're going to do, where the church decide, decides what it's going to do. I remember a sermon I heard years and years ago from a very um, personable young man called William. I always remember William. Um, because he preached a sermon on how wonderful our system is um, in that it, it gives us the, the, the chance to govern the church. He said, we govern our church through democracy. No, no, no. I sound like Margaret Thatcher, don't I? No, no, no. We don't govern our, our church through democracy. Our vision, and I know it's a very blurred vision very often, is theocracy. We believe in the resurrection, don't we? We believe that the risen Lord is present and active in the church. So when we come to church meeting, we come to meet him and let him tell us what he wants us to do. I know, I know, I know it's a very difficult thing. And I know in so many ways we can slip from theocracy into democracy. But essentially, the leadership in the church is through the voice of the risen Lord. And then, if it is uh, showing mercy, let him do it cheerfully. Showing mercy. This was something I was talking about last week as well. Um, coming alongside people and no, uh, showing them that you love them. All those things have got to go into the suitcase. Have we got everything? There's a list of the things that we need. So very quickly, let me take you back to Moses. Wilfred Grenfell's definition of hearing God's call has been with me all through my ministry. The recognition of a need and the recognition of an ability to meet that need constitutes a call. And God said to Moses out of the burning bush, what is that in your hand? What do you bring to sustain and grow the life of this church? So many of us are like Moses, aren't we? We make lots of excuses. I'm a nobody. Who am I? 
that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt. And God said, I know you're a nobody. That's why I've chosen you. What matters is not what, who you are, but who I am. And the fact that I will be with you. I've got no authority. Suppose I go to the Israelites and say, the God of the, your fathers has sent me to you. And they ask me, what is his name? Then what shall I tell them? And God said, take the name and, and authority of the everlasting God. The I am, the one whose name speaks of an eternal existence. And yet who is active in every instant of time. He was painfully aware of his inadequacy. Oh, Lord, I've never been eloquent, neither in the past nor since you spoke to your servant. I'm slow of speech and tongue. And God said, I will be, help I will be with you. I will help you, teach you what to say. I'll even provide a spokesman, your brother Aaron. And in the end, when Moses just couldn't believe someone like him could rise to the challenge, oh, Lord, send someone else to do it. And this time, God was angry. Now go. So the question is, what is that in your hand? What is that in your hand? Now, Moses thought that he just had a staff, a stick, a battered old stick, probably long past its sell-by date. Why on earth was God interested in an old staff? Well, you and I know why, don't we? Because it was going to be used to work miracles, and just in case you think it was a kind of magic wand, let me remind you of how effective that staff was when wielded with God's power behind it. It was used to confound the magicians in Pharaoh's court and turn the Nile into blood. It was used to infest the land with frogs and lice. It was used to bring thunder and hail throughout the land. It was used to summon an east wind that brought a terrible army of locusts which stripped everything green from the fields. It was used when the Israelites stood terrified with the sea before them and the Egyptians closing fast behind. It was used to stretch out and part the waters so that they could pass safely through. And then it was used again to come to, so that the waters would come crashing back over the Egyptian army. And it was used in chapter 17 to bring water from the rock at Horeb to quench the people's thirst. And then finally in chapter 17 as well. It was used as Moses held out his arms, supported by Aaron and Hur, so that the people might subdue their enemies. Just an old stick? I don't think so. What is that in your hand? That is the question. What is that in your hand? So often in salvation history, People didn't realize the potential of what they had in their hands. Moses' mother thought she only had a, 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 a handful of straw, but she wove it in a basket to save her son, and he became the prophet that the Bible says no prophet has ever arisen, a like Moses who knew God face to face. So what do you have in your hand? Think of Hannah, the woman who was barren until she gave her son to God. And through him, the way was paved for the greatest king bar one Israel ever had. So what do you have in your hand? Think of the widow, uh, widow of Zarephath. I always have a soft spot for the widow of Zarephath. You remember the story? Elijah was, uh, was on his way to Zarephath, to a city where he was, he'd been told to go. And he found a, a widow outside the city gathering sticks. She was gathering sticks, 
in order to make a meal out of the tiny little measure of meal and the, the cruise of oil that she, that she had. That was all she had. She said, I'm gathering sticks to, to, to cook this food for myself and my son, and then we're going to die. That was all she had. And Elijah challenged her. Make a meal for me first, he said. I always thought that was a bit of a cheek, really. <laughs> Make a meal for me first. And she took him seriously. She knew he was a man of God. And because she took him seriously, because she gave him what was in her hand, quite literally, God was able to feed her and her family and Elijah all the way through the famine. So what do you have in your hand? Remember the little boy with his five loaves and two fish? They fed 5,000 people. What do you have in your hand? Remember the widow in the temple who just had two tiny coins? Jesus said she'd given more than anyone else because it was all she possessed. So what do you have in your hand? There are two questions that I've asked this morning. What do you have in your hand? In other words, what can you offer to sustain this fellowship as it moves into the time without a pastor? And have we got everything? In other words, is everything packed and ready for the journey ahead? We will discover the answer to the first when we know the answer to the second. What do you have in your hand? Have we got everything? Amen.